This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So President Joe Biden has a really ambitious, ambitious policy agenda still, and he needs Congress this summer to help him get some of that done. Some of the president's most important pushes are on the line, including a big infrastructure package and other measures to strengthen the economy and America's social safety net. Meanwhile, we're facing a number of really big challenges, including a microchip shortage that is bringing manufacturing of many products to a halt, and all the extreme weather this summer across the country is highlighting the ways that climate change threatens our future stability. Here to talk about all of that and the likelihood of moving some things in Washington this summer is Congressman Dan Keldy, a Democrat from Flint Township. He represents Michigan's 5th Congressional District. Dan, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. It's good to be back. Yes. So what's your overall reaction uh, to this $579 billion infrastructure deal that the White House recently announced? Is that enough to make a significant impact given all of the infrastructure challenges that we see around the country? No, it's not enough. Uh, And that's why we've had such a focus on getting an infrastructure bill that is equal to the size of the problem. And I understand uh, where the president's coming from, um, but I think he needs us to continue to push to go much bigger. Because when you take that $579 billion increase and add it to the five-year spending plan for transportation infrastructure, we're right around a trillion, a little over a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. I listen to the experts, the American Society of Civil Engineers. These are the people who know infrastructure. They are about as far away from a political organization as you can possibly land. They think that our infrastructure need exceeds $4 trillion. Mm-hmm. That's to get American infrastructure into the 21st century. So the the frustration many of us have is that while I kind of get it when people say, well, we got to be careful about what we're spending, we also have to be careful about what we're not doing. We cannot run a race in the 21st century with 19th century infrastructure. Mm. China, our principal competition in in this sort of global economy, um, they spend about 10 times what we do as a percentage of their economy. There's no way we're going to compete if we force our manufacturers, our communities, to try to compete in a global competition with infrastructure that's falling apart. Mm. You know, we've seen it happen. I mean, the Flint case is an interesting one because it's a warning to the rest of the country about what happens when we fail to invest. You know, the for, for lack of, of, of 10 or $20 million seven years ago to make some upgrades to the Flint water system, we could have saved what's probably going to be something around a billion dollars in public expenditures for the cost of failure. Yeah. So we're going to pay one way or the other. It's like that old ad, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. So, that so the irresponsible position that's being taken. Do, do you kick the can down the road? Do you feel like there's enough in this bill to deal with things like uh, the the sewage and stormwater systems here in Southeast Michigan, which we've seen fail spectacularly this summer? But of course, we don't have to go that far back in history to to remember that they have been failing for a really long time. I mean, 2015, 
2014, uh, you know, w- w- this is happening over and over again. Does this bill do what it should to, to push us in the right direction? Well, in the right direction, yes, but not far enough in the right direction. And this is where I think my my position, despite the fact that I've obviously just articulated that we have a big problem and we need a big answer, I also believe that what we need to do is find the boldest common denominator, not the lowest common denominator, which a lot of times people look for, but the biggest and boldest common denominator that gets 218 votes in the House, 50 votes plus the vice president in the Senate, and President Biden's signature. If that's something closer to what the Senate Democrats just announced yesterday, Mm -hmm. which has a lot of detail that is yet to be revealed, so I'm a little cautious on that, but if it's something more scaled to that size uh, that we can get the votes for, mark me down as a yes. I don't, I'm not going to be one who's a purist, but I don't think the, the so-called bipartisan agreement that the president struck with um, a handful of senators, number one, gets enough Republicans in the Senate on board for us to avoid having to do this as a Democratic-only bill. And if we're going to do it just with our votes, why are we compromising with Republicans if they're not going to vote for it in the end? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Congressman Dan Kildee, a Democrat from Flint Township. He represents Michigan's 5th Congressional District in Washington. Uh, we're talking about all of the things on Congress's agenda uh, this summer, uh, things that President Joe Biden says he wants to get done uh, as part of his agenda. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Do you think this $579 billion infrastructure proposal is enough to make a dent? Uh, if not, uh, call and tell us how much you think we should be spending uh, to fix the nation's infrastructure. Also, give us a call and tell us what kinds of infrastructure projects you think should get the most attention and funding. Uh, also, give us a call and let us know what you think about the other things that are uh, going on in Washington uh, the microchip shortage that we face uh, that that's halting uh, certain kinds of manufacturing. Uh, what about climate change? The reminders that we're getting uh, pretty frequently this summer that uh, the, the, the climate is different and that the consequences of that difference uh, are going to meet out pretty brutally on some of our infrastructure. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. 1019. Uh, you can also go to the Facebook page uh, or to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation uh, that way. Um, uh, Dan, w- of course, we were uh, talking about infrastructure, um, but but uh, there's other things really going on right now. Uh, this microchip shortage uh, is a big deal, and we spoke with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin recently about what it means in her district especially for uh, auto manufacturing plants in Lansing. But give us a sense of what that looks like in your district and what you're hoping we'll be able to do to get things going. Well, it's very concerning because we're only beginning now to feel the effect of this. Uh, Anything that has the effect of shutting down inventory available to sell automobiles to the American public at a point when demand is beginning to increase is a real lost opportunity. And so the lack of available um, semiconductor uh, chips has made it really difficult for 
the automakers to supply the dealerships with the inventory they need to meet the consumer demand. Whenever that happens, there's an up, you know, there's there's an effect up the chain, and that could end up meaning the loss of American jobs. So we need to act. Um, the, the Senate has taken some action, um, and, and we uh, in the 2021 defense bill, we actually authorized some pretty significant investment in um, dealing with the supply chain issues around semiconductor, these microchips. We need to reshore that manufacturing capacity. We need to have it available here in the United States. What, what took place is an anomaly for sure. Uh, the fact that during the pandemic, demand for autos uh, dropped. Uh, a lot of the supply shifted to consumer electronics where the demand was really high and it created this choke point for autos. But it points out that we can't put ourselves in that position where we don't have control over an essential component, tiny little essential component of American produced vehicles. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can shut down big parts of the economy. And for me, what does that translate to? People that I work for losing their jobs. And I'm going to do everything I can to prevent that from happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Mark in Rochester Hills. Mark, welcome to the hey, show. Hey, how you doing? Good. Good. You know, I, you, you had asked earlier what, you know, what are your thoughts about, you know, what do you think is the most important thing out of the infrastructure? And um, actually, too, for me, is, you know, broadband for everybody. Uh, I'm a school teacher, and during the pandemic, you know, some of our students didn't have access mm-hmm. to the Internet. Um and then the other thing that kills me is, uh, you know, the electrical grid, which definitely needs to be updated. Mm-hmm. And as I was uh, telling the girl that took my call, you know, I'm driving down Rochester Road, and all I see is above-ground telephone poles. And I'm like, all of this stuff should be underground. I mean, other nations do it. And, I mean, that's a, that, that's a 10- to 20-year project just in itself. So, um, mm. you know. And yeah. then the third piece is just, you know, going back to um, the carve-out that they've been talking about, I'm all for it, you know. I'm tired of listening and hearing these Republicans say they don't want to work with anybody, they're always going to vote no. This all stems back to Mitch McConnell when Obama was elected, saying he was never going to work with him. And it just has led to a lot of, you know, stalemate, yeah. I think, in Washington. Yeah. Uh, Mark, I really appreciate the call and the the really thoughtful comments. Uh, Dan, the electrical grid in particular, I mean, we saw this last uh, this last spring, I guess, or winter that uh, in Texas, uh, the ways in which um, you know the grid is vulnerable uh, because really, again, of the underinvestment over a long period of time and and the change in weather that uh, is asking more of of the infrastructure. Uh, is that something that uh, is going to be a priority in this uh, infrastructure bill? It's certainly a priority for for uh, House Democrats and Senate uh, Democrats. Now, I, I have to take a look at, at more detail on the package that the Senate uh, Democrats just released to see whether or not grid monetization is included. I hope it is. Uh, but this kind of gets to the point, and Mark, uh, I think, hits the nail on the head. When, when discussing this, and that is that we have to have a broader definition of what infrastructure is. 
I, I'm, I'm exhausted when I hear people tell me, because they're sort of repeating Republican talking points, that just give us a, a roads and bridges bill. Mm-hmm. Just give a don't get all this fancy bells and whistles. Just give us the meat and potatoes and infrastructure. Well, the problem is what they're describing is the 19th century. And so if they want us to have the best, most, you know, shiny 19th century infrastructure, we could do that. It would just be stupid. What we need is broadband. That's the highway Mm -hmm. that gets everyone connected to the economy. So if you want to build new highways, build them in the 21st century. And the so-called information highway right now is just loaded with areas that are completely unserved. And, and, you know, the electric grid, another good example. Look at, as you said, look at Texas. That's where they have more of a, oh, let's let the free market take care of everything. Government should keep its hands off. Well, they wanted the government's hands off mm-hmm. right until they were out of power. And then all of a sudden, they want the government to arrive with generators, with water. And we happily do it. Don't get me wrong. I support disaster relief. But it's a little smarter to invest in avoiding those disasters and be more competitive at the same time than it is to just kind of hope and wish and pray that it doesn't happen to us, which is, I think, irresponsible. And that's the approach that many people seem to want to take. Mm-hmm. So so I, I want to change the subject just a bit and talk about something that isn't technically on the agenda anymore in Washington. Uh, this is the the voting rights uh, situation that uh, the president said uh, throughout the campaign and his early days in office that he wanted to get a bill passed to strengthen voting rights in this country. There was a real effort made uh, across the aisle with Republicans, with uh, Senator Tim Scott, uh, uh, talking with uh, with Democrats about ways to come together and figure out how to how to do that. It seems to have just kind of crumbled and stalled. And, uh, of course, all of these issues are, are interlinked in the political sense that, you know, if you get one thing done, perhaps you can go on to the next. Uh, if you can get a compromise here, maybe it loosens up uh, negotiations in another space. But, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk about uh, what Democrats still would hope to accomplish with a voting rights package, and and whether that's something that could come back to the fore. I mean, it really has melted into the background uh, profoundly in the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, I would say that it is clearly still on our agenda. It's one of our top priorities, but we have hit, you know, we've run into a problem. And, and frankly, the problem is that the obsolete, antiquated, quaint rules of the United States Senate allow senators from small states to band together Mm -hmm. to prevent the will of the people from being manifest in law. So whether it's H.R. 1, which is a complete reform of of the election process that protects redistricting from being manipulated, that helps get corporate money and dark money out of politics, that ensures access to the ballot. You know, that ought to be a principle we all adhere to. I don't know why it isn't, but it ought, we, we, we talk as if it is. Or, or H.R. 4, which would, you know, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would restore essential elements of the Voting Rights Act, which were um, removed in 2013 by the Supreme Court. 
Both are important, but it's kind of interesting when you think about it. These are two pieces of legislation that are essentially trying to protect the principles of democratic governance that are being stopped by something that has nothing to do with democratic governance, Hmm. and that is a veto by a small group of senators, all Republicans, that don't want voting rights to be protected in this country because they don't benefit when they are. They would rather cheat to win than allow people to cast their ballots and have them counted. Now, here's the problem. We have a couple of United States senators that happen to be Democrats, with whom I vehemently disagree on this subject, that somehow believe that the um, that the filibuster, which was never anticipated when a nation was formed, never discussed at the point in time that the Constitution was written, but somehow they believe that the filibuster, which is a vestige of Jim Crow, mm-hmm. is somehow this artifact of history that has to be protected. That's ridiculous. It's crazy. The, the, the framers made it difficult enough to get something done by dividing government into three branches, by having the House and the Senate constructed in ways that put the state's interest in competition with the population at large, by having a president with the right to veto. It's hard enough without giving one body a, a situation where a minority of the members in that body themselves can stop the will of the American people. It's it's uh, it's very frustrating. And that's where the pressure needs to be focused. And, and last point I'll make on that. This is where I think sometimes Democrats need to get out of our own way. Mm-hmm. Let's just ask ourselves a question. Okay, we can answer it with recent history. What would the Republicans do if they had a very slim majority and the ability to filibuster would get in their way of, let's just say, passing a massive tax cut that benefited 1% of the population with 93% of the benefit, or appointing two members of the United States Supreme Court with less than a 60-vote threshold mm-hmm. for lifetime appointments? I think we know the answer to that question, and we don't have to look back very far in order to get it. Why Democrats decide that we are going to hold ourselves to a standard that no one ever anticipated anyone would be held to, and Republicans just run with the ball whenever they get it, mm-hmm. I think it's embarrassing, and it's, it's something we ought to address and change. So so would you, I mean, this is the big question in the Senate. Would you say that this voting rights bill or these these proposed bills are the hill to die on with the with the filibuster, that, that, that this is important enough to say, we're going to we're going to do away with this institution and this is this is the reason and we're okay with that i mean would you if you were in the senate uh, be in favor of that absolutely i mean let's face it if we can't have a voting rights act that protects people's right to cast their ballot no matter where they're from or who they are if we can't have guarantee that states can't distort democracy by gerrymandering their districts And if we can't have a Voting Rights Act that says that if states or local governments engage in voter suppression, that we can't have the federal government come in and protect the voting rights of those citizens, none of the other issues matter. If we're going to have a a government that allows a handful of small state senators from, you know, right-leaning states 
whose own population may not even support the positions they take, but they do so to protect their own power. You know, we can talk about all these other issues, but once we give away the fundamentals of democracy, what do we what do we have? We have we have nothing. This is the hill to die on. And and the other point though, and this is important to continue to drive home, the filibuster is not as old as the Constitution. It's as old as Jim Crow laws. Right. That's where it started. That's how it came to life. It was used by Southern senators to prevent civil rights from being enacted in this country. The rights of minorities, the rights of former slaves were were tamped down with the Senate using its tool, a small number of senators, to stop progress. And the idea that that has now sort of become an institution is, is, I think, just blatant ignorance of history that I think these senators, and I know these people, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's extremely frustrating to hear them say things that would imply that they never took a history class. It's frightening. Mm. And and so when you talk with the president about this and other issues that are stalled out in Congress because of this filibuster issue and, and the structure of the Senate, what does he say about the idea of changing it? What does he say about where that line is that you decide – Hey, we just can't we can't do it this way anymore, and allow the other side to use the power of a minority to stop the majority from being able to do what what it wants to do. Well, I know it frustrates him. I know I know it does. Um, you know, he's a, a person who spent a long time in the Senate. He knows how the Senate works. I think the one um, the one element of, of of President Biden's history that is unavoidable is that he has long believed in the power of compromise. Mm -hmm. And so I think his preference is to find some common ground and not necessarily get into this sort of pitched battle over the rules of the Senate. I'm not speaking for him, but that's just my impression. The, the, The difficulty with that, and again, I think that's honorable, right up until the facts no longer support holding that position. Mm. And I think what we have to come to grips with, and this is difficult because I I try not to be overly partisan. I'm I'm a Democrat and I'm proud of that. And I choose to be a Democrat, but I, I try not to be overly partisan if I don't have to be, but let's face it. The Republican party has changed Mm -hmm. dramatically. It is almost non-existent in its previous form. It has become a combination of the cult of Trump and the unprincipled positions of Mitch McConnell, who has made it clear, even though he may not be a, a you know, a, a Trump guy, where he falls in line is that it, it is his position that his job is to prevent any Democratic president from having any success whatsoever, even if it's good for the American people. Right. Right. That's the Republican Party of today. I don't think you can negotiate with people like that. Okay. Uh, Congressman Dan Keldy of Michigan's 5th Congressional District. Always great to have you here on the show, and uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Anytime. Thank you, Stephen. Okay. That is going to do it for us today. I want to thank student producer Dan Netter for his help. 
producing today's show. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with the curators of a new exhibition called Halal Metropolis, which explores the facts, fictions, and the imaginaries of the Muslim population. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.